This season is sponsored by Future Farm, the revolutionary meatless meat food company from Brazil. They're cooking up products which can match and exceed our juicy meaty favourites on taste, texture and sizzling flavour using only 100% natural ingredients. My favourite? There's too much choice. But if I had to choose, hands down it would be the future meatballs and future mints in my classic lasagna dish. And get this, they're standing up for some pretty big things too, like reclaiming the Amazon rainforest back by fostering the movement towards GMO-free and deforestation-free products in place of those that are unethical and illegal. Definitely not just another plant-based brand, hey? Very up my street. The full Future Farm range is available now at Sainsbury's. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, industry insiders, and people who, well, just love their food to find out all about their life, career, and favorite tastes along the way. Today, I'm joined by Gizzy Erskine, a very well-known face on the culinary scene. As a trained chef, TV personality, pop-up restaurant veteran, and even a model for Asian Provocateur, She's been at the forefront of the celebration of food through her numerous cookbooks and TV appearances. She has recently released her new cookbook, Restore, which is a modern take on sustainable eating. And during lockdown one, she launched Giz and Greens with rapper and musician Professor Green. This was their take on the nation's most loved takeaway options such as pizza, fried chicken and everything in between with a healthy twist. Aside from rustling up delicious recipes, Gizzy is very vocal about the myriad of issues within the food industry and has some very important opinions on how things could change in the future. What better way to talk about the glorious topic of food than with this beauty? Gizzy, thank you for joining me. This has been very exciting. I'm so pleased we finally, we've been talking about this for so long. (laughs) I know, it's been a while, but we've got there. The Wi-Fi might not survive throughout the whole thing, but at least we're both here yeah. remotely in the same place, on the same, in, on the same internet link. <laughs> <laughs> How are you and have you had breakfast this morning? Well, I've got my coffee, so um, no, I haven't, I haven't had breakfast. I'm sort of like in this weird headspace where I was like, right, I'm going to start this year doing intermittent fasting and I'm not going to eat anything until a certain amount of like certain point in the day. I've not succeeded once, but I sort of am skipping <laughs> breakfast. So it's sort of I, like, I don't know why I'm even doing it. It's not made any difference. My brain is still like a mess. Um, I'm still the same size. It's clearly I'm not doing it right. So I should probably just start eating breakfast again, let's be honest. <laughs> do you know what I find? I mean, I, I naturally, I don't even realise that I'm doing it, but I do sometimes do intermittent fasting. Simply like if I've had a massive meal the night before, yeah. I'm genuinely just not hungry first thing in the morning. But my issue is, is that if I then start thinking about the fact that I'm doing the fasting, as soon as it comes to lunch, I'm practically having the two meals in one anyway. Yeah. So it defeats the whole object. But you know what? It's I, t- I absolutely understand that. And it's so true. Like I, the second you put any kind of pressure on or and restraints on yourself for anything, it's the only thing you want to do. And I think, yeah, I, I know I know that I did a juice uh, cleanse at the beginning of the year. And I just... 
I was stuffed to the gills full of juice. I was high as a kite of sugar. And all I wanted to do was eat. I'm like, what is wrong with it? I'm full. Like, I'm actually full. I was like, taking more calories than I probably do anyway. But um, it's completely yeah. psychological food. It really is. Obviously, uh, we are recording during the time of madness. <laughs> um, how has how has that actually affected more like your cooking? Have you still mm. been feeling as inspired? Are you fed up of cooking? Are you kind of done? Are you wanting to get out to a restaurant? Like, where do you kind of stand with it all right now? Well, I don't know if you know, but I opened uh, a restaurant at the St. Martin's Lane called The Nightery. I mean, I like it's something that I never imagined was going to yes. happen. So pretty much this time last year, uh, we just opened. We're about a week into it. Um, an opportunity. I mean, as a Londoner yourself, you know how important that hotel has been to London party life. Yeah, my God. Um, with, with like even I used keep, to be at Bungalow Eight for a good few years. Eight, same. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and so. Suddenly you get offered this space. I never wanted that caliber of restaurant. And then I thought, you know what? I just turned 40. I want this challenge. Put myself into this extreme scenario where I'd opened a few years before I'd opened Mess Street Market, which had been the biggest. I mean, it was a market with five different eating spaces with three different menus throughout the day, uh, which was open from eight in the morning all the way through to midnight, one o'clock in the morning. There was a lot of a lot of work to be done there. And it was such a great place to cut my teeth, but it didn't work out. So all of a sudden I've got this opportunity with the nightery and I was like, this is where I'm going to make amends on this. And um we were open for five fucking weeks. It was a nightmare. I mean, it wasn't a nightmare. It was actually a beautiful nightmare. Um, so we'd, we'd gone in, started work on this six months before, uh, actually finally got through the door in December, uh, opened the beginning of February. And within five weeks, we'd, we'd got brilliant reviews. I'd never imagined the reviews we were going to get. I got like five stars in the Times from Corin. I'd got, the whole Amazing. thing was just like, what the hell is happening to me? And then all of a sudden, COVID strikes and we close and we're never going to open again. So that was like my, my launch into COVID. Um, mm. So I suddenly got this opportunity, though, which is very rare for me to actually have a sit down, which was quite nice. I won't pretend that after, you know, that kind of that kind of launch. And, and you know, what was the difference with regards to what you're saying, the difference was all of a sudden I'd taken out of my taken myself out of a kitchen, which is a professional kitchen, which is where I've been for the last, you know, God knows how many years, all the way through to actually. And while I've been a very successful cookery writer, um, because I I used to, I don't know if you know, but I used to do behind the scenes. I used to work for a lot of the big chefs uh, and write all their books. So. I know all about you, Gizzy. I've done all my research. Just you oh, wait. <laughs> like, I'm just sitting there going, what else? Um, but, um, you know, so I'd gone, I'd, you know, I'd cut my teeth doing all this stuff, but actually to suddenly be a home cook again has probably been one of the most invaluable things. And it was just like, oh my God, I can cook spaghetti bolognese because I want to. And yeah. you know what? I'm having a yeah. Sunday roast and it's not just to try out a new supplier. It's because... I want to, and I get to choose. It's choosing what I eat. What I eat is such a rarity. I don't think people understand when you're a real mm. chef and you're in kitchens. You know, you, you're eating delicious food the whole time, but actually, really, you're jumping and grabbing snacks here and here, there, and everywhere. You don't really cook at home. So when I have time off, it was always a luxury, and even then, there'd always be something I had to do. All of a sudden, I'm like, ah, oh, the world is my oyster. I'm having shepherd's pie tonight, and I don't care. And, you know, it was. 
it's kind of like you've regained control of like your eating and 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 i guess you know the love of yeah. cooking not taking away from the fact that you didn't love cooking whilst you were in professional kitchens but you, you sort of brought yeah. it back to basics undoubtedly where it all starts which is always at the home Completely. You know? i mean obviously you know incredibly sad that the timing was so unfortunate with the nightery um, what was that concept? Because it was kind of like a American French yeah. sort of God. hybrid. Well, I never do anything simply. So, and it's not even simply. Like, I, the one thing you can say about me is that I can't really summarize anything. But basically, it was more about feeling. So, uh, I'm really interested in French art and Bohemia. I guess you know, my mum was very Bohemian. She grew up in Paris. Uh, is massively into the art world. I always loved the idea that there was this turn of this time at the turn of the century where you had all these brilliant artists, philosophers, um, scientists, you know, poets, musicians sitting side by side, probably like our mates, let's be honest, honest sitting side by side, procrastinating life uh, with carafes of wine, probably all sorts of drugs, and having a wild time creating... Um, new sort of philosophies on on the on the world and out of that came so much interesting artwork surrealism for example is a great is a great place to start mm. then you've got the fact that that sort of, sort of was still in a sort of slightly depressed state and america came in uh, after the first world war in the 20s and saw what was going on there there's a sort of reminiscence of it the uh, reminiscence of this and then took the concept and that's where uh places like las vegas and um what was boardwalk empire that was um atlantic city were all based on mm. so you know taking things like um the moulin rouge like, like girls can canning proper showgirls parisian showgirls and taking them and making them into las vegas and they suddenly took this concept and made it so american um in the best way, you know, there was something really trashy about it, vaudeville about it. And I just I just loved the idea that you could sort of translate those things within each other. So it meant that I could cook the food that I really love, which is really good, honest, hearty French cooking, which probably is what I grew up with because of my mum's um, time in Paris. And then also I was able to sort of put my sort of I mean, I love retro and I love um I love vaudeville. I love burlesque. I love all of those things. It suddenly, but it, it, more than that, it kind of gave a sort of early punk attitude on the food. It meant that I could go look. I want to. I want to make uh, oysters, but I'm. I know what's going to taste better than a classic mignonette. I'm going to put some yuzukoshu in there, and that's going to bring the whole thing to life. Mm. So it just it just gave me a bit more uh, access to play, be playful with ingredients. Sorry, I'm just I'm just, I'm stuck on the the yuzu with the uh, with the oyster, and I've just oh god. I mean, you love you love Japanese food too, don't you? Oh, I mean, to be honest with you, I pr I practically eat everything. Yeah, same. Um, and I mean, and that is such a shame that it didn't last as long as you wanted it to. But in the short amount of time that it was open, you know, as you said, it got rave reviews. So I really hope that when everything opens up. You might pick it up again. Who knows? It's, it's interesting. Like, I've thought a lot about it. It's such hard work. I mean, that's the thing is that it's so disheartening. Anyone who's in restaurants will tell you that the not just that. I mean, there's an enormous amount of financial investment that went into that place. You know, it's a monster building. It was 350 covers. Um, mm. It's got so much history and heritage, and we were doing it as a pop up to begin with to try it, trial it, and see how we cut our teeth with it. But then, all of a sudden, you're in this space where um, 
you've also got like I mean I've never had to, uh, the ability to work with the, that volume of chefs. So I had like like I think forty of the most brilliant chefs working under me, and you know a lot of them were Michelin starred, and everyone took it all with such gusto and gave their heart, you know, because that that uh, Asia Cuba had been running for like twenty years or something. And then it had a, a couple of years break and everyone was so chomping at the bit and raring to go. And you suddenly have that rug rip, rip from beneath you. It's a lot of an emotion. It's a big emotional thing. And I think, absolutely, yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I'd love to do it again, but if I was going to do it, I think it would either have to be like a really authentic. I mean, I'm hoping for the 20s when we come out of this, you know, and uh, me too, <laughs> you and I both. So if that is the case. I mean, sort of touching, touching on this sort of pop up restaurant culture you know I do see you as like this veteran because you have sort of put your hand to so many of them now Mm. you know I mentioned that you know during lockdown one you and um Professor Green created Giz Giz and Greens um which then you sort of did at Paso for for a period of time you know what this whole pop-up restaurant culture is bigger than it ever was. What is it about the temporary or the sort of the excitement of sort of going in, coming out that people are so drawn to rather than having those sort of standalone restaurants that sort of are there for years, churning it out time and time again? Are we just kind of wanting something a bit more exciting? She says she's asking the 41-year-old unmarried woman. (laughs) A commitment... I think I think you know I've always been um, I've I've always been really not um, I've got a lot of ideas so for me personally it's about being able to execute an idea trial it see if it works um, and often by the time you do it you feel like you've I, in my case I feel like I've run it it's run its course um, yeah and I love the feeling of launching something and being able to sort of like take it away and go that was such a brilliant yeah. time. Um, I, I, so, so in a way, I don't want it to feel like it's run its course. Let me rephrase that. I like the idea that you, you're you giving it a short amount of time to the point where everybody's still desperately wanting it. Take it away. There's nothing worse than something getting sad and boring. <laughs> so Agreed, agreed. So I think, I think that there's that. I think there's not that many people who do that well. I think a lot of people just see it as an opportunity mm. just to try a bit of, you know, a new concept or new food, which is, which is really what it's there for so I but I don't to actually really create the moment I guess like with all the people who I respect who do it it's not just about opening a restaurant for a short period of time it's about creating a moment in life in that in the restaurant dining scene that has been so unique and unusual now my very first events I don't know if you ever came to any of the early ones that like I did one called K-Town where I'd been out to New York and I've been working I'd gone out to work with a very famous chef uh, who had a flood and I couldn't didn't get to work there, but I wanted to learn sort of Korean um, Pan Asian sort of like Korean fusion sort of food. So I got I got placed with another chef who was brilliant uh, and spent all my time in Koreatown in K Town. Fabulous. Fell completely in love. And the great thing about K Town in New York is it's like very much an after hours place. So you go mm. after you finish your your uh, at the restaurant and I mean you'll know chefs are absolute nightmares. Um, you'd go and have some chimex, so you'd have a beer, a frozen beers with fried chicken, and suddenly you'd see all the drag queens come in, all the like, all the dodgy night owls. You'd just be sitting there, and it'd be like, you know, it, it was such a brilliant space. Like it was almost like that Bohemia I was talking about earlier. After hours, everyone creating the most intense mischief. Great thought, um, you know, 
analyzing life and philosophizing it and just having a fucking great time. And I I just saw that moment and I was like, I need to bring this back to London. Because although we've got a career town, which is in Rains Park, it's not the same thing. It's not, I mean, Chinatown, I suppose, in the 90s had a bit of that behind the scenes. But um, this is something completely unique. And I just, yeah, so I, I basically came back to London uh, wanted to sort of showcase Korean fried chicken. And then, you know, I'd been to see with, with David Chang and I'd, I'd learned about the bao buns. And, oh, was it with um, David Chang that you were working with? I was meant to be, didn't get oh. to in the end. Um, but uh, yeah, so we ended up having, so I learned how to make, uh, I, I still had learned all about these. I mean, Korean food, these aren't, the bao buns aren't Korean actually. They're um, they're Taiwanese, but they were so huge in New York. Fried chicken was fried, Korean fried chicken was so huge in New York. That's where I first tried Korean chicken was in New York. It's it's the best place, probably. It's almost better than in Korea. Yeah. And trust me, I've done it. Yeah, I was just about to yeah. say. <laughs> I've done a huge TV show um, out in Korea that I filmed for over about seven months. And I've had my fair share of, and I absolutely love that country and I love the fried chicken there, but they sort of do something very special. I mean, David Chang's fried chicken, Korean fried chicken is probably the best in the world. And I got a um, this absolutely stunning Korean um, drag queen to host she, who kind of came in like this sort of uh, stunning, like she's like a, a mom who was running the whole show and bossing everyone around. And uh, at the end, she got her dick out. And it's like, this is your eating experience. <laughs> so it was just like, and then we had a... Um, that is brilliant. We had a Korean Elvis, who's the biggest diva I've ever worked with in my entire life. Uh, like five courses of Korean sort of um, street food, like in inverted commas, uh, with, with a sort of punk London twist. Um, and then uh, like loads of rockabilly, like um, Korean rockabilly bands. It was fucking brilliant. Everyone was dancing on the tables by the end. The food was good. It wasn't like when you go to one of those usual events and um, and the it's sort of like food takes second place. The food's yeah, excellent. Yeah. You're there for the food, but there just happens to be this wild entertainment, and it's so good. And then we finished with Bosa. It was just so delicious. Like, this sounds fabulous. Mm-hmm. You're making me just crave to go out oh, and man. just experience. But I think that's also a key word as well, is that with this whole sort of pop-up culture, I think, okay, I mean, this could have been slightly more on the extreme end, what you did with K-Town, but it is about an all-round experience mm. that you're getting to go to somewhere that might be there for three months, might be there for a month, who knows? Mm. But you sort of get that moment... And it sort of leaves you wanting more. Yeah, totally. I'm older than you, Hannah, but I, I don't know if you would have remembered, like there was a, there's a, a thing, there's a brilliant company in East London called Bistro Tech. Um, and they- I do know them. And they sort of, they now have the Ace Cafe and things like that. Yeah. But they, back in the day, did one of the big, it was around the time I started doing pop-ups. I was, I was at St. John at the time and I just started doing, um, it's got to be about 20 something years ago. And I just started doing, um, these uh this my very first pop-ups before I, i'd done any telly before i'd done so this was just to make some money i was i just left catering school i was broke me and my friends uh set up a, a, this catering company called saucy tarts and we ended up doing a couple of events in galleries and that was really what had happened we'd we'd started to do these things and, they, and suddenly people were paying us in a different way to kind of come in and have a dining experience at the gallery so rather than having a warm wine you'd have uh, a proper sit-down dinner you know, it would be, and you'd pay what you wanted. We never made a penny from it. 
So um, God, you were so ahead of your time. Yeah, it was it was really very early days. And then I remember going to Bistro yeah. Tech. It had this like, huge event. It was a Christmas one called the Reindeer. I'm going to say about 20 years ago, maybe not quite. And they ended up. It was so brilliant. They kind of taken over the Turin Brewery and made it into this winter wonderland. It was beautiful, like loads of like furs everywhere and these beautiful antlers coming down from the ceiling. And it was like snow. It was stunning. And um, I just was so inspired by it. And I was like, this is the way forward. It's like they've taken over a fucking, um, uh, like I said, a, a, what, what is the true brewery? It's like an old brewery that's now, now a car park, really. Yeah. An event space yeah, now. It's, it's a bit of everything. Yeah. I was about to say, it's an event space. It's a car park. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a bit of you can It can be whatever you yeah. want it to be, I think. Um, <laughs> it's like, it sounds sexy. So just that was super inspiring. And I think as soon as that happened, I was like, right. I um I went around the world, learned how to cook in some more restaurants and came back and I was like, this is what I want to do. And the rest is history. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> I just want to take it back. You just you just previously mentioned your mum and sort of where your love of sort of Bohemia and the vaudeville and all mm. of that sort of thing comes from. So you were born and raised in London. I was actually brought up in Scotland. Um, but I, so I was like two weeks old when we moved to Scotland um, and then came back to London and moved to... Sounds really posh. I don't really like saying it out loud. But we were then we went to Belgravia. Um, and my mom... Of course you did. Darling, don't <laughs> feel embarrassed by that. Come it's on. It's embarrassing because it kind of indicates no. a very different lifestyle to the real truth, which was we were actually really fucking poor after my mum and dad broke up. In your mixed different dynamics of Scotland, Belgravia, <laughs> Wandsworth for three minutes um, and everywhere and Paddington else. Paddington really was, Paddington Marble Arch was where I was brought up. I want to know about your relationship with food as a child you know who was cooking was food important um you know what were you eating you know give me sort of sort of paint the picture so my mum uh I think I have to explain a bit about my mum first of all um who is actually friends with your dad they haven't seen each other for a long time is she, she yeah they used to um my mum used to do PR she was a model and actress okay. growing up and then I think so they knew each other from the from the scene then Oh my god! Had no idea. We're pra- we're practically related. We might. We pretty like, much are. This is like a love story. <laughs> I know. Oh, I think it already is. Um, yeah, it already has. So my mum, but she was well, she grew up around the world. She she left home when she was young, very young, like sixteen, I think. Moved to Paris, married someone, and then I think she just got this thirst for you know she's kind of from semi multi multicultural Polish uh, Ukrainian uh, father, um, Jewish father, and then. Um, Scottish um, mother, but really her her mum was very bohemian. So her mum was Edinburgh Art School, then went off and became uh, a communist Buddhist um, and lived in a monastery just outside of Edinburgh for a bit. And then came, when they moved to London, she was a clairvoyant. So you can see that there's this like really interesting sort of history in my mum. So my mum's thirst for like culture and uh, world food was always there. And she just, so we were brought up eating like, I'd beg my mum to make me chop some peas or, like, fish fingers and chips. I would beg her. And uh, she just never would. And so it was like, you know, we. I remember having teenagers and having pad thai with dried shrimps in it and being like, Mummy, can we just oh, not do this? I love it. <laughs> it's like, 
and also like galabki and you know just all that like boiled cabbages and things like that I, mean, I have stank I had the smelly lunchbox do you know what I mean to be fair Gizzy so did I did I was you? the one that used to have all the gourmet sandwiches oh yeah my mum would be at the local delicatessen giving me like beautiful brie sandwiches and you so you know those oh. old school wooden desks yes. and at lunchtime you'd open it up and the it'd be wolf. like this whiff <laughs> And everyone so would be jealous. like, what the fuck is happening, yeah. Hannah? And I'm like, listen, this is this is me. Yeah. Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not eating like a dairy lee slice and a oh. piece of processed ham. So were you not jealous? I remember my friend, I she used to come in with we used to swap sandwiches and she used to have like a very heavily buttered cream cheese and marmite sandwich. And even to this day, that's one of my favourite things to eat. Because it was like it was like the it was a sin, essentially. <laughs> Yeah, I was more jealous of the snacks that my friends had because my mum was quite um, sort of instilled quite a healthy food ethic. So I was only really allowed one packet of crisps a week. Yeah. So it was like on Fridays, I knew I'd get my packet of crisps in my lunchbox. Whereas for the rest of the week, I'd sort of be longingly looking yeah. at everyone else <laughs> eating their skips and Monster Munch thinking, God, I so wish that was me. Yeah. But in terms of the sandwiches, I was I was definitely a front runner. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, I bet you were. Bloody hell. The great thing was, so she, she ended up moving to Thailand when we were sort of teenagers. And, and I, I didn't like the woman who looked after us as food. God, I shouldn't say that now. Dottie, Dottie who looked after us, uh, just died. So bless her. <laughs> um, but she's... Um, <laughs> I didn't actually like her food. Um, so I used to call my mum and my mum used to talk me through how to make the dishes that we were brought up with, which were, a lot of it was oh, sort of, wow. you know, the first thing I learned how to cook was sweet and sour. It's not really a sweet and sour pork. It's like a Thai version of that. I actually don't even know what it's called in Thai. But I made it for my little sister because she loved it and she was sick. And I was like, I need to do this. And we lived um, just off the edge of road. And I was able to like run down there and pick up all these world ingredients so my mum, yeah, she used to talk me through all this stuff and I loved it. Then I got obsessed in the 90s with like cooking with um, with things like cooking sauces. And I used to just, so I, I started very, I'm talking about really young, I must have been about 13, 14 years old when I was just like, I've, I've now discovered the, you know, life. And I think it's an ego thing, to be honest, because I'd cook for my sister and she'd be like, you're amazing. Thank you so much for doing this act. And then, oh, my God, it's delicious. And then also with my mom, she would be, like, so proud of me. And then also mm. I used to eat everything. And my sisters didn't. So I was always like, you know, you're really great. You eat everything. <laughs> so all of these things are clearly created this weird narcissistic, psychopathic, so sorry, sociopathic side of my eating brain. Like, I need to appease it constantly. <laughs> it was always, like, in the in the... In the sort of so water. I guess in a way then that the sort of the the culinary life was very much in you from from day dot. Yeah, De- totally. I mean, there was no getting away from food. It's probably similar to your mum. Uh, mm. My my um, my mum just loved food, loved eating. We had a fridge. We mm. always had, in, and I mean, it's not always great things. Like we would have a fridge where we'd have like I don't know, she'd ferment stuff you know, and it'd be in the fridge and it, that would reek as well. And I'd be having friends around. And I'd be like, what is this weird stuff that's like got a film over it? I'd be like, I just can't explain it. It's just, whereas now, look, if you have a look here, I'm like the fermentation station right up Oh, here. how fabulous. Like, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's ingrained in all of us. I wonder if we were growing up at that age now, whether those comments would even be happening because it's, it's just, so true. it's like, you know, things like fermentation are kind of 
second nature yeah. now, isn't it? So true. Kimchi's in Sainsbury's. When I was growing up, kimchi definitely wasn't in Sainsbury's. Oh, I've got to show you. This is kimchi. <laughs> this is my cat kimchi. Oh, <laughs> she is. oh my God. Oh, no, she actually does have a cat called it's kimchi. Called kimchi. <laughs> oh, my oh. God. Hello. Oh, beautiful. She's very beautiful. Mm. She is beautiful. She's naughty, though. She's like... That's, that's how much you love kimchi. Yeah. <laughs> but you named your cat kimchi. As you embarked on sort of into into adult life, you obviously went and trained at at Leith's. Mm-hmm. What was the experience like there? Because it's always something that I kind of, perhaps had I have realised that my love of food wasn't just down to just eating food. It was actually that I'm interested in food. I actually probably would have liked to have gone to chef school. I think you should. I think you still got time. Do it. Leith's changed my life. It's it's one of the best places in the world. I was. You can't yeah. remove the privilege of that something like that, though. It's not... I mean, I, I slogged through that experience with blood, sweat and tears, and it's expensive. It's a private chef school. And the truth is, there are a lot of people who go there for finishing school. Like, I was in this weird place where I'd already had a career. I used to be a body piercer. And um, when I was... Did you not know that? I actually did, but I was just, I was just giving the face for effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and then I, and then my next thought went to, I have a few piercings that I want to get done. So maybe we could ooh, do that on the side one hello. day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That's for the other podcast. Yeah, exactly. That's when you come on mine. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. So basically, I'd already had this career. I, I had, I left home when I was like 17, I think. I had, um, you know, I've been, I've been really like independent since I was probably, I mean, look, you just got to look at how I was cooking. My mum had been away for years and years and years. Mm. I'd, um, so since I was a very young, young teenager, I unfortunately only made it into like the, the young part of Leith's. So they had three um, levels. So you were like up to 25, 25 to 45. And then like you had a seniors group and I made it into the young one, but I'd already, like most of these people were just out of like school and I mm. didn't relate to them at all. Plus their parents were paying for it. I was paying for this myself. Um, I hadn't planned it. I lived on my own. I had a flat in um, uh, Tower Hill that was like, Steve Strange was my landlord. And you just- What? Yeah. <laughs> so it was just Oh my like... God, I can only imagine what that was like. <laughs> my friend Anthony and, and, and Steve Strange had this like property business. It's very weird. That is so bizarre. So they tried to evict oh, me halfway up. through it. And it was just like the weird, the weirdest time. I was like- fucked like I was piercing on the weekends I had no money I was cooking all day then you had like so much homework to do every night and then had to work in restaurants too which was an amazing experience I loved every minute of it but I was exhausted and it wasn't the the same privilege that everyone else had because even in the the class the groups above me they'd either earn enough money see I hadn't earned enough money to be able to make myself self-sufficient um enough to get through that kind of taking a year off work essentially or they had partners, you know, a lot of them come from banking backgrounds mm. or had rich parents or rich partners. And it was like, you know, I was fucking poor, like really poor trying to get through a private school. But the other option was going to, you know, I'd already been I'd already been working as a chef for about six months before I'd gone. And um, the other option was to go to Westminster. That was three years. And I just was like, I need to make money. And plus, I don't know if I want to be a restaurant chef. I, I love working in restaurants, but... I think there's always been a bit of a like sort of sneaky 
um, cog going in my head that was like, this isn't, I'm never going to make enough money working as a restaurant chef. And I knew that I wanted to do something with food, but I wasn't quite sure what it was, but I wanted to make, I knew I've, I've got to put my hands up. I want to make money. And I think that that's yeah. the, you know, I was doing it for the love, but I also, I knew that there was, would be some kind of gap there. I hadn't quite worked out what it was. So I didn't want to wait another three years to get, to get qualified. So how long was the course that you did? It was a year. So you say that you were, you were chefing before. What would you say was the main thing that you gained from your experience at Leith's? So I left school when I was 15. Um, my father died on my first GCSE. So, uh, and I just never went back. I was a little shit, to be honest. That was, that was as much to do with me being a twat as it was to do with my dad dying. Like I was just, I was off the rails at that point and doing loads of drugs. And, you know, I just didn't want to go to school. So I didn't. And I never fulfilled that potential. So I think the second I went back to, mm. to school, I knew that I had to appease something in myself, which was to be really good. So I, I explained before that I was exhausted. I'd worked so hard um, and I was like really on my last legs. I was working in restaurants at night. Uh, and one day we had this trip, this school trip where we were going to um, Smithville Meat Market and I passed out, never passed out before, never passed out since. And started like hysterically crying. And the, the head teacher there was like, we have to get you through this. You're one of the best in the school. So I was like, okay. She, and she ended up paying for my last term uh, as a loan. So she paid, so I didn't have to go to work, wow. which was one of the most heartfelt experiences I've ever had. Like somebody really investing in you to that. That was my first real, um, what do you call it? Like, um, uh, like like a mentor mentor like exactly sort of, yeah that yeah, was my first real mentor and um her name was caroline watergrave she she owned leafs uh she bought leafs off free leaf and um okay she was amazing and i did it and then then the, i think because of that investment i worked my fucking ass off i came top of the school and i won an intern placement to go and work for bbc good food magazine and it was just that achievement was so big that i I know that it gave me a confidence that I can do whatever I set my mind to. Oh my God, I feel a bit emotional. That's really weird. Like, I haven't really thought of it like that. But, but, when, but when you look at it, it sh- I mean, you, and, and you did that, you did that. That's what I'm yeah. trying to say. No one forced you to go and do that. Yeah. You did that. Um, and you know what I really believe in? I feel like everyone has their own time frame in life. Mm. And I mean specifically with the, the element of time, you know, I've always said to myself, oh, I've always been like a, you know, a late starter on everything. I was the one that kissed the boys last. I was the one that got the boyfriend, mm. bef- you know, last out of all of my friends. And I think that you, we're all, I'm, I hate using the word journey and I'm not going to use it in this instance, <laughs> but we but are journey. all on our own <laughs> journey. Journey. Um, journey, oh, that wonderful word. And how wonderful that when you now speak about it, like that was what was meant to happen, you know? Yeah. Like I've spent 10 years being a photographer. I mm. don't know if, who knows if that's going to happen again. I'm loving mm. this at the moment, mm. but you know, and sometimes I think to myself, oh, but Hannah, you're 33. Shouldn't you have started this at 23? Yeah. And it's like, but, but what does that even mean? Yeah, I don't, I don't agree. And I think all it, all it shows is that, if we've got it in us, we're just going to do it. If you want something enough and you, you can find it inside yourself, you can change it anytime. I mean, essentially, I'd already had a career. I was 23 when I went finally yeah. made it to catering school. That doesn't sound very old, but I'd already had a seven-year career. So, mm. you know, and, and I'd modelled when I was younger. So it was it was kind of like, I don't know, I just... It's, it's, 
And also, you know, sorry, I'm bouncing all over the place. Sorry, you have to deal with this with me. Oh, this is like the love it. ADHD I love it. brain. But I love it. Don't with, worry. Within the intro, you're talking about as you're a provocateur. Like, I'm 41, a size 14. I did like one of the big, one of the hugest sort of underwear campaigns in the world. And it's like, what the fuck is, what is that? But you, if you, and I was like, I only found out seven days before. It's like, what are you going to do? You're going to not do it? You know, <laughs> it's like, of course you're going to do it. Um, yeah. And you can and you can do this stuff. It's, I just was like, I don't know. I, I, you've got, you know, and therefore with what you're saying about yourself, you absolutely can do that. Do do a course, learn like a short one. Do something to just mm. give yourself that that bit more confidence because you love food mm. and you you're, mm. you're clearly a great cook. You clearly know your shit. Well, you'll be the judge of that when I cook for you one day. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned earlier that you um, worked at St. John for some time. Mm. What was that experience like? And the main question is, mm. do you eat every part of the animal? I do indeed. The only bit I'm not, I mean, I have eaten pretty much every part. I've had, when I was a kid, I had to eat bulls, bulls, uh, sorry, lambs, bulls and turkey because <laughs> my father was living in Cyprus. Um, so in Istanbul, they just gave us a platter and my dad was like, just do it. I was like, fuck. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love offal. Like, I love it. And yeah, St. John was amazing. I mean, it was a great experience. I did a stagio. It was an extended stagio. I did get paid there for a, for a few weeks or months. I can't remember. It was so long. It was almost like 20 years ago. Let's not forget. Mm. So, um, but I loved it. I'd been working in Michelin restaurants, doing stagios all around London and, um, Suddenly, you know, you're in some really scary places. I was at Royal Hospital Road for a very short amount of time. And I was in uh, the Oxford Tower when it had a star. And it was great. Like, these were great, fun, vibrant, angry, old school kitchens. And some of them were not even angry. They were just quiet and so intrinsic, but not heartfelt, you know. And suddenly you go into the St. John and... I started at Bread and Wine and going downstairs the first day, taking my coat off and like, right, come on, you come at the right time. We're going into the walk-in and we're going to butcher this kid goat. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? This is great. And, you know, and then people actually having the time to one-on-one invest in you. That was the difference with St. John to anywhere else I've worked. And I feel like that's the one thing. I mean, I wasn't there. I say I wasn't there long enough. I think altogether I was there on an offer for about 18 months but I was I started at school and then it so it sounds a lot longer than it is I always feel I see this is a problem I think a lot of male chefs wouldn't give a shit they'd be like I worked at St John and that's it whereas I was like I was a stagiaire and it was yeah. you know maybe I did get paid for a bit but I can't tell you and maybe I can't tell you how many days exactly it's like I was probably there for 18 months on and off so Maybe I should just own it. I don't know. <laughs> I think you should just own it. Absolutely. Own it. Fergus and Trevor are so amazing to me about it as well. But I still feel that. But they was, I don't know, they were doing, everyone says they work here when they didn't. So I don't want to be one of those guys as well. <laughs> so. And so what was the jump from sort of working at all these, you know, hugely reputable restaurants and kitchens to kind of getting to the point where you were now starting to make TV appearances, you were doing recipes for, you know, all the major magazines, cookbooks. I mean, I know I'm fast forwarding a bit, but kind of like, what would you sort of pinpoint as sort of the real sort of like big break moment? Uh, it's a very clear one. So I was working at Good Food, um, made one of my dear friends, Barney Desmazri there. Um, and he, I think they always felt like I should 
be on TV. I never, ever, I mean, I hated modeling. I've never, I was an, I was the ugliest girl in the world growing up, by the way. I, and I, I can't believe no, that, but okay. I'm going to show you this to you. I look like Edward Furlong meets Mark Ronson, uh, <laughs> but with terrible teeth. So it was, it wasn't good. I was like a boy and um, I really loved, um, I, I like loved food and I, I have a naturally um, sort of, what's the word where you're um, I re- like, I have a naturally um, inquisitive mind and I want to know everything and I get fixated on certain things. So with food, I, w- I was like, I need to know everything. And like I said before, I needed to know, I needed to prove that I could do this. So I went in deep, deeper than most people. And I think that's, something which has been really useful in my adult life, uh, part of my condition, mm. which is ADHD, is that you get real big fixations on things. And then while I was at Good Food, I met people like Gordon Ramsay and I met, um, I mean, you're not really allowed to say who you're writing for. <laughs> I don't know if I love that. But, you know, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, you're start, you start working, people, all the chefs you meet because you're doing photo shoots or you're uh, rewriting their recipes anyway. Mm. So it kind of started like that. Anyway, the, the time I finished working at Good Food, they do an annual show in Birmingham called the Good Food Show. And I had to go down there. They had a, a fill-in slot where I had to work for, um, what's it called? Um, for uh, bloody, anyway, it was an in-between slot between Gordon and Jamie, let's say. And uh, they had a huge, big agent that had just spotted me. But what I found out was the, pub- the publisher and them, that they wanted me to do this so much that they actually stitched me up a bit with it all. And I, um, before long, I was uh, being headhunted by all these agents, but I hated it. I didn't want to do it. So I was like, I need to go and cut my teeth, which was at that point I was doing the pop-ups, going around the world, getting more training. And eventually I couldn't get away from it. So I was working behind the scenes on all these shows. All the big producers were like, you have to do this. And in the end, I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll give it a go. There was a tiny slot on a show called Taste uh, that my friend... um, Put me I up think for. I remember that. Mm, don't ever. Some very funny things <laughs> on the internet. I had like the size of my head shaved at the time, uh, oh and uh, well, no, it was fine. But the thing is, I went, I went on and trying to be like a proper girl, and I sort oh, of put brilliant. my hair like a, a sweep across them, wearing. I mean, I was like really punk. Wore a dress that was so not me, and was so meek and like. It's the least me version of me that you've ever seen. It's actually really embarrassing. What and that and then then the rest was history, I guess. Then Cook Yourself Thin, which was a big Channel Four primetime show that yeah. I did, which uh, I ended up doing over a period of sort of four or five years. Um, mm. Yeah, they had tons of me off that. I mentioned in the intro you recently released a book called Restore, um, which is sort of full of all these really revitalizing recipes. And I think what I'm really interested in talking to you about is that it targets some of the issues that um, the food industry is facing. In particular, one thing that um, I know that you feel quite strongly about is sort of this idea of these fashionable alternatives that people are eating in replacement of meat, Mm. such as soy, avocados, um, coconut, um, and actually how that's also damaging you know, certain industries as well. Mm-hmm. For people that might not know, what's your stance on all of this? Because I actually think it's quite a major issue myself. Good. Well, there's been a huge misconception. I mean, look, we're, we're constantly learning. The great thing about science is science is trying to be conclusive the whole time, but it's always a little bit inconclusive. And we're, we're constantly evolving uh, how, what the truth really is. 
And, you know, there is a huge truth in one of the big issues in the world, which is leading to catastrophic environmental issues, is that we overconsume beef. And in the overconsumption of beef, we grow a lot of uh, grain. Um, and the grain that we're growing, by the most part, is something like soy or corn. Um, and that's now they're saying about half of the volume of, of um, these grains that are uh, grown in the world are being given to um, to livestock. So we were actually growing this food to feed the animals. So ultimately, the truth is, and also within within these grains that we're growing, there's a thing called single crop rotation, which means that soy is now grown in um, in uh, crops which they that they turn the soil once each time. So actually, the soil is now losing full blown nutritional density. It's now turning into powder. And because of that, the carbon is now coming out of the soil um, and we don't we, we, we're carbon negative in the world. Now, we're really lucky in the United Kingdom. We're actually really good at agriculture. And by the most part, we don't farm like this. We do to a degree. We do feed a lot of our animals uh, grain, but not consistently. And, you know, it. it Actually, I'm going to swipe that because it's almost it's almost irrelevant in this to this uh, what I'm trying to say, which is. We now need know that we need to start integrating um, carbon back into our soils. Now, we are a carbon rich country. We're the Green Isles. Um, but the fact is, because of modern agriculture, pesticides um, and the single crop rotation, we are losing uh, the fertility of the soil. And what makes really good mm. soil? And, and I mean, it's a really fascinating thing. I, mean, I think if you'd have to be blind to not have seen what's been going on with gut health over the last few years. And we talk about um, the uh, microbiomes in the gut. Now, we are built up of all of these this different micro, micro, microbial diversity. And if we don't look after that, we do not have health. Now, the problem is that where we get that from is growing our food. Now, in the soil itself, one sort of teaspoon of soil has more microbial diversity than all of the life on Earth. So that is an indication of why we need good soil. So the soil that I'm talking about that's not doing well is not just a problem because of carbon. It means we're not going to be able to get the right nutrition back into our body. So it's, it's this big, vicious cycle that we really need to fix at every point. Now, the one simple fact... The one simple rule of how we're going to get that um, done right, and part of it is what we've been learning about um, cutting back on meat, but it's not just about cutting back on meat, it's cutting back on factory farms, intensively reared meat. We need grazing animals, we need outdoor reared animals in order to get the soil healthy again. You do, you mm. see a cat, a cat, no, a cow, um, and it does a big cow pat, and that cow pat has been walked the cow's eaten the grass and it's been walked all over the place and um the the diversity is on its um, feet as much as it is in the, the what it's eaten they eventually trudges this uh, all over the place does a shit a big cow pat and that cow pat will bring healthy um grass to to the to the which then will in turn be healthy soil you've got to get the soil rooted as well and it's going to take years so it's it's a, we're at a really scary, pivotal point. We know that the carbon is is screwed. You know, we know that we're, we're not carbon rich anymore as a world. And we, we need to be looking at these traditional farming practices in order to get back. It also makes much better meat, much healthier meat. 
And we don't want to... I mean, I know that I'm definitely a product of that sort of turn turn of the um, century, that sort of in this century, that where we're, where we started to eat uh, meat three times a day. I will kill for a bacon sandwich for mm. breakfast, ham salad for lunch, or and the spaghetti bolognese for dinner. That's my dream day eating, but mm. it's not good for me, and it's not good for the planet. And we have to be con- considerate and conscientious now. We just have to. It's not. It doesn't actually become an option anymore. Eating meat is important. Eating meat at the volumes we have been eating it isn't. Eating the right type of meat uh, isn't. You know, if you're vegetarian or you're vegan for animal rights, then absolutely salute you. If you're doing it for ethical um, and environmental issues, you're doing it wrong, I'm afraid. So how do you think the messaging needs to change and why do you feel like the message up until recent is kind of been stop eating meat, you're practically killing the world? I mean, you know, it's sort of it's gone so far to to the extreme in, in certain communities and certain conversations I've had with other people. And I do know people who stopped eating meat simply because they had watched certain documentaries, you know, not naming any. But yeah, um, Netflix has that's... a lot to answer for. <laughs> no yeah. And I it. just and I do. And there was a particular one that I know someone who is still a vegan three years later. And mm. I do have a bit of an issue about that mm. because that's not a valid enough reason for me. And that's a very dangerous reason. I um, more, so how way. do how do we change the messaging? Essentially, is it basically everything in moderation? Does it just come down to that? No, actually, that there, there, there needs to be there needs to be a, a whole new structure of agriculture. It isn't everything moderation. We need to look at a whole new structure for um, for eating for for how we grow our food. We need to be uh, grazing wild stock, livestock. Sorry, we need to be rewilding, which means. Uh, bringing sort of wilderness back to the farming land because we take away all of the natural habitat, things like bees and insects. And um, those are also, also critical to, to, the, to agriculture. You know, there's, we need to be, um, I mean, it's, it's tricky because it becomes a social issue. And that's one of the things I desperately don't want to be sitting here as a very privileged uh, middle-class woman who has uh despite had a few issues in life has pretty much come out on top i don't want to be sitting here and going you need to uh change how you eat when we when we know that it also costs a lot more money but it's actually so i'm not putting it on the person actually i mean look if you want to if you want to know how to do it as the person and actually affordably uh you know there are there are loads of ways in the book that, that talk about that but you know, one of them being getting um, boxes delivered from direct from farm. You can get them. There are sort of uh, subscriptions you can get on now that are like thirteen to seventeen quid a week, um, which mm-hmm. I know I spend more like more than that in in a local supermarket. So and you're getting organic Absol- food God, straight from absolutely. the plant. Yeah. yeah, and it's so easy. Like there is no reason. And yeah, you have to be a bit more creative. You can't necessarily eat what you want to eat the whole time, but you you it's quite a good thing to push your push you too. Um, I don't know, like, we should be eating uh, high quality meat, but just less of it. Um, We should be, God, you know, it's tricky. It's like everything, like, it's hard to talk about this without getting really political. But consumerism has become a real problem in how we eat. And the fact that we have access to everything, you know, do we need those reels and reels of of, uh, frozen food aisles? Now, frozen, actually, frozen food, I'm a big fan of. But, you know, what I mean is the prepackaged foods. 
do we we don't we yeah. just don't need to be eating like this anymore and um, but then in that case it probably needs to come it needs to go right to the sort of foundations which is education in that case because you know for example you and i are, are in a privileged mm. position in that we know what we're talking about we can see it for what it is you know a hell of a lot more than i do mm. but sort of the, the 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 majority don't know this because they just don't they haven't been I told they just they don't know what what they don't know do you know what i mean i think that we're, what the good news about the modern about modern culture is we do learn things very quickly learning how to cook though isn't something that people that everyone yeah. knows how to do and and to, yeah. do, to do to really do to really 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 do you know we've become far too familiar with our microwaves and prepackaged meals and we know that we don't have to cook takeaways for example have become like un- scarily affordable um, I remember having to do a thing a few years ago where I had to, there was a piece I, they wanted me to write from a magazine where I had one of the big frozen food brands had bought out for 20 quid, you get got 20 kilos of food and could you do the same in fresh food? And you just can't, you know, mm. it's an impossible thing to compete with. And then you, then that's why the social situation is so complicated because who am I to judge somebody who doesn't have that money? You know, it's not, it's not something that I get to sit on my high horse and preach about. But so therefore, I, I think actually it sits more in the responsibility of the government that why we are still using fillers and we are still using uh, foods that aren't, aren't sort of the import, the like the imported stuff that is coming that isn't sitting. I mean, I know this is defunct right now. I don't really have the argument to to say alternatively at the moment, but that weren't wasn't within the EU guidelines, but we're still being able to be imported why was all this stuff going on why is the it's like it all stops with the financials of this industry and you know the fact is people might argue that we're making um by mass production we're making food affordable to the masses which is where it goes without any shadow of a doubt but what detriment to somebody else's financial gain and to the um, detriment of the consumer and it's that to me is the big problem here over education it's somebody is making money out of other people's uh misfortune and that is horrific as far as i'm concerned like why are we fucking still intensively rearing animals we know it's bad for the animals we know it's bad for the humans we know it's bad for the environment why the fuck are we still opening up like these manufacturing plants which is what they are for because it creates cheap meat to feed the masses okay it does but we can find we there are so many alternatives out there um that would sustain the planet and um and sustain better life uh for everyone involved something that you just touched on about sort of when i asked you you know what can people do uh to kind of slightly change their habits um and i guess one of the easiest things was what you mentioned in terms of ordering direct from farms and from producers and i think one thing that has been quite positive that's come out of this time of covid is that i mean i know listen perhaps again i'm talking from privilege because i live in a major city in the capital but i'm now able to do that to be able to buy from directly from the producers from the farms because you know they deliver in my area or even you know i've noticed that some of my local shops it's a totally different chain 
of uh, it's a totally different supply chain and actually the produce that I'm getting at what used to be my local news agent mm. is I've asked him is coming direct from some of the farms just on the outskirts of London amazing and it's fabulous and so why would I now go to my local huge supermarket and buy everything that's covered in plastic which is a completely separate conversation but yeah. whatever yeah. Um, and is more expensive I'm not getting my money's worth when I can just literally walk down the road with a bag and fill it up. I totally listen. Like I it's, there, it's there waiting. It's there waiting for everyone, really and truly. The one, the one thing that has been extraordinarily good about uh, the pandemic has been this, because it's meant that we have had to look outside the box and getting yeah. food to the masses. And it yeah. was, and also it's meant that the supply chain for restaurants, which has been really shit for a lot of producers, actually hugely detrimental as detrimental to a lot of the restaurants closing is the supply chain losing its thing losing its access to to market but um you know we 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 really do have to acknowledge that it's positive that 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 we can actually most it's not just a Londoner thing I promise you you can go anywhere in the country Mm. got about six six major suppliers of really high quality food I I know that go from bloody you know, Timbuktu, if you need it, like to uh, the Outer Hebrides all the way down to Cornwall. So there is yeah. no excuse. Now, if you're living in a farming community, you'll have that access as well. Everyone's Absolutely. doing it because they've had to. And it is so brilliant for the world. Now, Brexit's a different thing because it'd be really interesting to see. I mean, it's still, it's too soon. I mean, we know that there's like massive backlogs of uh food being able to get into this country we've got all the problems with the fishermen i mean it was only this week i think maybe just the end of last week where the we realized that all the oysters you know it's key oyster time this time of year we've got this huge influx of the best quality oysters we've had in fucking ages and nobody can access them and you've got this huge parts of the industry that fucked and we've got this almost like free food (laughs) that's available that we're it's not free food but it's you know we just need to restructure it. But the great thing about British people and our this sort of enforced culture is we are so quick thinking and able to like, you know, change that sort of that structure. And and I'm really proud of my industry. I'm proud of all of my supply chain for how quickly they've managed to move and get into the homes. And we're now privileged at home. Can you imagine now we're able to eat restaurant quality food from all the restaurant suppliers? Yeah. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it. I think it really has. It's been one of the biggest things that has come out of this year that I've sort of very much uh, received with welcome arms. Mm. Speaking of, what is a normal day in food for you? Ah, Joe, you know I never really have a normal day. I always start with a coffee. Actually, that's not true. I'll start with Simprove. So it's one of the best probiotics. The reason it's so good is it's a liquid, so it hits your gut. Your and your stomach acid doesn't break it down. Most of these pills they kill oh. they kill the probiotic in your stomach. Professor Green's now got this new um, company called A Gulp. Stephen's like one of my best friends. We haven't even spoken about Gizzy Greens. Um, we sort of tried to. I know. Yeah, we, we're going to go on to that in a sec. Um, but he started this new brand called A Gulp. So I take a couple of those sachets in the morning, and then I have a coffee about half an hour later. Honestly, then I spend my morning dreaming about what I'm going to eat, which is often what I want to eat is noodles or uh, pho or ramen or something like that. What I will tend to eat is about seven slices of cheese and some crackers <laughs> from the fridge, um, depending on the day or it depends what I'm cooking. You know, if I'm 
you know, if I'm at the restaurant, so for at the moment we've got Grizz and Greens open, so I'll be between the dark kitchens testing and developing me- recipes, and so a lot of it will be eating, eating a lot of pizza. <laughs> Far too much pizza, you can see, at the moment. You can never eat too much pizza, as far as I'm concerned. Where do you live again? I'm in West London. I'm going to send you pizza. Because um, we're launching all of the new stuff. In fact, Stephen's doing deliveries tomorrow. So let me see if I can get him to deliver a pizza to you. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll get my dad ready for him as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, that, I mean, see, like, again, you know, that was a concept that was born, you know, during lockdown one, because I believe it, because Stephen was stuck in Morocco, wasn't he? Yeah. So he um, he has his lovely girlfriend, Karima. They've gone to sort her dad out. They'd, we didn't know what was happening. And I think they thought, okay, mm. if there's going to be a lockdown, it'll be for a few weeks, but he's older. We'll go out, we'll sort him out, we'll come home. Got out, lockdown. Uh, and they weren't able to come home. It was the, the borders closed, everything. They couldn't get out. So uh, Stephen got there and he was like, right, I'm just going to use this time to sort my shit out, uh, get on top of all my work, and I'm going to learn how to cook. So... The first thing he did, and it actually was really shit for me, because I'm not, believe, despite what people might think, I'm not very good on social media face-to-face. Like doing, I don't like doing videos. I do it if I have to for work, but I don't yeah. choose to speak to my camera. That's not. I'm not an influencer. Yeah. I am a chef. And See, I can't stand that either. I don't yeah. mind doing something if I'm actually filming something, like professionally. Yeah. But I cannot do, like... Oh, hey, like, let's talk about what I'm making. I just feel like such a twat. <laughs> I know. Yeah, so Stephen's out there and he was like, went on Instagram and was like, oh, it gets, because we were best friends forever. Like, I just, I don't, I can't even remember meeting him. I do remember meeting him properly, but I'd already kind of hung out with him a few times. So yeah. I've literally known him forever. And we just got really close after both of us had a big breakup and, uh, there was a lot of speculation that we were together, which we never were. We just love each other desperately. Like, hangs out with my mum at Christmas. I mean, that's how close we are. Aww. Yeah, no, he's great. And so we were, uh, so he's like, going on his social media, going, Giz, Giz, like, I-, I need you to teach me how to make spaghetti bolognese. Give me my ingredients list. And he's like, you are responding to me. He sent me a message, you're responding to me on, on Instagram. And I was like, what are you doing? I was like, no. So then I basically had to give him, I had to run down a recipe, send it to him. He then started doing it. And then he made me do an Instagram live, basically, where I talked him through how to make the spaghetti bolognese with ingredients he could only get when he was there. So mine, right. my spaghetti bolognese calls for chicken liver and uh, veal mince and um, uh, pork mince and things like that. He's obviously in a Muslim country, couldn't get any pork, couldn't get any pancetta. Oh so we were like, right, and we came up with this bolognese. He used merguez and... It was lamb mince, and it was fucking delicious. It was, it, I mean, I, I actually Bet. ended up making the same thing. It's so good. So we just talked each other through it, and it was trying to show how, like, flexible recipes can be. Anyway, then he was like, Gizzy, you know, he lives off fast food. He loves it. He's like, I need a burger, but I just need McDonald's. Can you teach me how to make a Big Mac? And then we just decided to do, oh, no, fried chicken. That was it. So I taught him how to make fried chicken uh, as an Instagram Live next. And then everyone started picking up on it. Before we knew it, we had like we were just doing a show every mo- Monday for everyone during lockdown. It was proper, proper junk food, but made with good ingredients. So yeah. it was sort of going, you know, but actually, can you get that flavour? And we were doing it better. I think, but like, I know that's, I hate it when chefs say that, make it better than the original. You don't want it better than the original because I want a Big Mac. But actually, it was better and you didn't want the Big Mac after making it. It was just so, because you, your body digests it all better. And so before we knew it, it had gone viral. It was in the New York Times. Australia had written about us. 
uh, and like being these saviors. Uh, the Times said that I was like Vera Lynn, and the, the end they'd be rolling <laughs> me out at the end oh of at the end of lockdown. It was so hilarious. But you know what? The reality was that's what people want to cook. And you got to remember, mm-hmm. we had three months of all of the fast food chains being closed, completely yeah. closed. So mm. suddenly you couldn't get your McDonald's, you couldn't get your KFC, you couldn't get whatever. So And out of interest, did you get any backlash from, let's say, Domino's or Pizza Hut or whatever it was that this... Did they ever sort of like come to you and be like, what are you guys doing? No. And you know what? Quite the contrary. I mean, Domino's... Actually, none of the pizza restaurants got in touch. I don't think... Pizza Express did because um, they wanted to work with us. We had Nando's call us up. We had KFC call us up. Everyone wanted to work with us because ultimately you're still keeping the brand alive when they had no access to it. So it was really cool. It was a great opportunity for for people to kind of collaborate with us and do fun things, which was actually not the intention. We did it with through pure heart and like fun. We were bored and it was something to do. We're just desperate for a bloody burger. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But then before you knew it, everyone had just sort of really engaged in it and it was just fun. And then with the pizzas, we obviously did the pop-up at Paso that did so well. But yet we served like 25,000 pizzas. I tried to get in, by the way, Gizzy, and I literally couldn't get a you space. Couldn't, you couldn't get a space. I couldn't get my mum a space. I had to, like, no. force my, my mum in. I was like, don't care if you don't have a table. I'm so, we'll stand at the end of the bar and I will make <laughs> yes. the bloody pizza myself, you know. But it was it was really fun. Like, we then knew that when lockdown happened again, it was like, look, we're going to go into dark kitchens. Uh, and so we've got a couple of kitchens around London now. We've got one in Bethel Green, one in Olympia. We're about to open, I think, in Brixton. Uh, we, I, I really want to go to Camden and then maybe like down towards um, southeast London somewhere. I'm not quite sure. So, you know, and then we want to go around the country. It's bloody hard work, though. You know, we the th- what we created was a pizza that was like Domino's and it's, it's, it's a stuffed crust pizza it's got the only thing that's different is that it's made with really high quality, slow risen, three day sourdough. That's actually it, it was kind of like Naples style in the fact that we were putting it in a wood fire. So it's getting the leoparding and the big crackly charry crust. Mm. Uh, but it was a really light pizza dough that had an enormous amount of poof. Um, it's different to Domino's like Domino's has that sort yeah. of. It's like a bread, you know. It's like a I good just, chewy bread. I was bread. just about to say that's my only issue with mm. with that with that that kind of realm of pizza is that it is just too bready. Yeah, exactly. Whereas this has a very thin crust, uh, mm. but really, really crispy out, outer rim, and the the pizza, the cheese in the middle uh, of the rim is like a really high quality. Uh, we got a, a, a buffalo mozzarella um, company making uh, Fiore de Latte in uh, oh, Somerset. Um, and then we've got the, we get the San Mazzano tomatoes from Italy because they're the best. And everything's organic, basically. DOP, uh, sort of Italian, where we're getting Italian ingredients. We've also got really good, um, really brilliant Italian organic manufacturer, not, not producer, who makes some um, really amazing pepperonis and pepperoni, sorry. Um, and, you know, delicious hams and things like that. We, you know, we're doing a higher, uh, like at the moment we've got, we're creating this range, which is called, it's going to be called Giz and Green's Upper Crust because we it's a piss take on all of the, the brands which are already out there. But it's really, essentially we've got really thick, so smaller pizzas, much bigger crust. Uh, you get really rich sort of bit more grown up pizzas uh, with this. And you and you can use a crust for like, we're making like delicious anchovy oils and really oh, good buttery stop. crust. I'm it's so, so delicious. I'm so hungry. I know. 
I've I love it. And I'll tell you what else I love. And for anyone that hasn't seen it, it's the marketing and sort of um, how you sort of like created the whole brand and the whole concept is very, very clever. It is really funny. It is it's basically cool. me and Stephen really cool. being put into like really awkward situations. Like the, there's a kebab <laughs> where I'm the kebab with my face melting and Stephen's shaving my face <laughs> into <laughs> kebab meat. So like, no, it is. It's, it is really cool. Aside from making fabulous pizzas, and I think you said earlier, really lovely spaghetti bolognese. What are some <laughs> of your specialities at home oh, when you're just God. cooking for the love of it? Do you know what? One of the things I love to make is a good stock. So I am. Mm. Um, uh, I love making broths and I love making a pho. I love making, um, God, I love making just a good Jewish chicken soup. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to eat. So yeah. um, th- those are the things that I get real thrills from. I love roasting bones and then roasting my veg and then making a really good intense stock. I love making a white stock. I love making uh, bone broths. I, you know, I, I just... I, lo- I just really enjoy the process of really slowly skimming um, the top of the pot and just really focusing on that moment where you suddenly see the gelatin all come out and it suddenly gets viscous yeah. and really intense. I, re- I mean, that's where I get my biggest thrills. And aside from obviously your amazing ventures, where are some of your favourite restaurants in London? <laughs> I miss eating out so much. Oh, so, I know. <laughs> I love Nobu because I just know you know what you're getting. And it's always good. It's just always yeah, good. I actually say that to people. Listen, you know, it is bloody expensive. Mm. But the times I've been, um, I haven't paid for all of them, which is always quite nice yeah. as well. It tastes a bit tastes a bit better when you're not paying. Yeah, um, is that it's just consistent. Mm, it's really you know what you're getting. And you know what? You are paying. You're paying for what you get. Mm. It's true. It really is true. Um, I mean, like if we're talking like everyday restaurants, my favorite, the place I eat most in the whole of London is a tiny little Malaysian restaurant called CNR Cafe. Uh, and it's in Chinatown and it's teeny weeny 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 weeny. And it's mm. does this amazing thing called one done haul, which most people would look at and go, I'm not eating that. But it's one of the most delicious things. It's like a, a wok fried um, hoi fun noodles that are like, like a charcoal towel, really, which is a delicious Malaysian yeah, noodle. Yeah, love that. And then mm-hmm. they put over a sort of broth that they've poached, well, quickly stir-fried and then poached um, pork and uh, loads of shellfish and different se- like different seafood with loads of different uh, fish cakes and stuff, and then some pak choy. And then it's thickened with both corn flour and egg, and it looks like sick that they pour all no, over the top sounds- of it. That, that it's sounds like the sort of thing that I so love. So delicious. And you have it with pickled oh. chilies and soy. And it's, mm. I mean, I, that's where I'm going first. But then I love... I'll see you there. We go together, <laughs> honestly. Yes, I'd love to. Uh, that sounds amazing. And then there's also Brat, which I love. Uh, have you been there yet? I'm desperate. Okay, no, that's where I'm, ta- I'm taking you to Brat. We're going to okay, do we're that. we're going to go to Brat. Okay. Okay, so and Brat is like... It's, it's on all, my list. It's all wood fried foods. Um, so barbecued based on a restaurant uh, called Eshia Barry in, in Spain, which is one of my favorite eating experiences of my whole entire life. We should go there as well. <laughs> well, 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 let's just cool. start a new eating club around the world. I love it. The board is open and you and I <laughs> yeah. are just off. Um, but it's, um, it's very beautifully cooked, like things like a whole turbot or a whole sole. Um, which is just full of gelatin. They get it to the point where all the gelatin comes out. I mean, I'm, I'm big on gelatin, by the way, if you haven't already noticed. Yeah. No, um, no, I, I appreciate it too. And then like delicious, like really simple. So not like saucy food. It's just kind of, 
you know, beautiful tomatoes with great simple dressings. Um, really good, like a really good seafood rice that they cook in the wood fire. It's just delicious. The whole, I mean, it's just the, all the menu and fucking great wines. So natural yeah. wines, but not the twatty natural wines. But they've also got a really good, good sort of very solid French and Italian wineness as well. French, Italian, Spanish one, which I love it. I love a bottle of red, a good bottle of red wine. Right. I finish all of my conversations with a few quick fire questions. <gasps> so my favourite snack of all time is a packet of crisps. What is your favourite flavour of crisps oh! and why? Just really simple, basic bitch, salt and vinegar crisps. I don't want expensive crisps. I want really heavily salt and vinegar, really vinegary salt and vinegar crisps. I, even just plain walkers will do. I love Pringles too. Okay, can I give you very good tip? Yep. Um, so I recently conducted um, an Insta Live with these guys that found me on Instagram called the Crisp Guys. And they basically rate all the crisps. They taste I'm and rate all the crisps possible. Anyway, cut a long story short. Um, because I asked this question to all my guests, I got a recommendation of the best salt and vinegar crisps going, and they are from the co-op supermarket. And I think they're called, the full name is Chardonnay White Wine and Sea Salt. Right. You have never had a salt and vinegar crisp I don't crisp believe like you. It. I'm not having it. No, Gizzy. I am mi- mind blown. No. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm doing it for you, okay? Again. Get yourself to a co-op, get your mask on, okay. and go and get a packet of crisps, all right? There you go. No excuse. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? Dog sticks. <laughs> but they're not really dog sticks. <laughs> they're, they're in Korea. It's a, um, it's a little wiggly... Um, it's a sea... Like, it's an anemone. Like a cucumber, maybe, and they basically. Right, okay. but it looks like a penis, and they okay. cut, they basically cut the foreskin off, and they have it live like sushi, and it sort of crawls across your plate, like and it looks like a little dog's penis. I'm gonna send it to you. I'll and, send you a picture of it. And what does it taste like? Nothing. Chewy seawater. Chewy as well because they like it hard. It gets hard in your mouth. It's really horrible. Just like just, just like a dog <laughs> stick. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Okay. Never had that answer before. <laughs> what's been, what's been your most memorable meal? Uh, do you know what? Probably the meal, weirdly, I already spoke about it, going to Eshabari in uh, the Basque country um, and having this just amazed me. I went with Neil Rankin, the chef. We oh. uh, ate for England and it's out in the mountains, almost like Alpine. It's so weird. It's such a weird part of the world because it's, you, you know, in the Basque countries, but it's not Spain as we know, but it's, it, you know, you fly into Bilbao and then you're suddenly in this Alpine weird mountainous, almost like Swiss place with sheep everywhere. And then, and all these old dairy cows everywhere and really inspiring place. And then there's this just tiny little restaurant with this old mat. Well, it's not tiny, it's actually a huge restaurant, but a tiny kitchen with this older guy who's making smoke roasting food all over wood fire. And it's just oh, super fabulous. inspiring. One of the best things I ate there was this amazing, um, God, it's not very quick fire, is it? Um, That's all right. But it's uh, a smoke roasted uh, carabineros prawn, you know, the, the red, big red prawns. Oh. And they've almost sous vide it in smoke. And to the point where it's like poached perfectly in this smoke with salt and then you know the brains you squeeze out they're like a snow they're like yes. a smoked beast fuck it and it's just oh that gosh. bit of olive oil salt and that thing and it was one of the best things i've ever eaten 
That sounds fabulous. Okay, that's also on my list. Yeah. What food sums up happiness for you? Ah, too many. I can't choose one. My mum's Thai food, because she grew up, you know, we were in Thailand. That's like a roast dinner for me. And the final and most important question, I, I think I already, I mean, I practically should just answer this for you. Live to eat or eat to live? Live to eat, seriously. Of course, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> Food is everything to me, you know? And I do I do feel like, the, again, the one privilege, as you said earlier, at the beginning of the interview is like, the good thing about COVID was it's just reinstated just how much that is, you know? And I think even for people who didn't love food have now realised the importance mm. and also, I think, the love of mm. food during this period of time. I think there's been a, a fear of cooking and, you know, now everyone's making their sourdoughs. Just for this new book, I'm going to have to get everyone making their own ferments now. So. Exactly. That's the next one. Gizzy, you have been the biggest pleasure. I think oh, that you are just you. wonderful and... You know, you took your own little path and look where it's brought you to. So thank you so much for sitting down with me. Hannah, I adore you. You can follow Gizzy on social media at Gizzy Erskine. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Crazy Sexy Food and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time. Bye. Bye.